You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. What does it mean to put our hope in a God we can't see? What does it mean to walk the walk of faith? This is our sermon series, Water and Blood, Finding Rest in Jesus, Our High Priest. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Sojourn. How are all of you? Everyone doing well? My name is Andy, and I am one of the pastors here. I oversee our outreach ministry here at Sojourn Midtown. Uh, It is a joy and a privilege for me to open God's Word with you all today. Uh, My family and I have been in Louisville, Kentucky for now almost two years, which is kind of wild to say. Uh, We're originally from Iowa, so uh, this is like a, you know, kind of a crazy, any Iowa folk? We got anyone? Didn't think so. Okay. Uno. Um, Great to... Again, great to be here. And I will just say this on behalf of me and my family, my lovely wife, Emily, and our uh, sons, we have just been loved, cared for, seen, um, given space to be by this church family. And I'm just unbelievably grateful uh, to call this place home. So thank you, Sojourn, for just being a joyful presence uh, to me and my family over these years. So uh, I've been contemplating decision paralysis and how prevalent it is in all of our lives. Um, Some of you are like, what in the world does that mean? Well, I'm going to quote a very reliable source, google.com, and give you a definition. It's the state of indecision when faced with multiple options that we struggle to compare. Okay? So uh, think about the cereal aisle at Kroger, all right? Decision by paralysis, right? Just completely paralyzed by all the decisions. Think of Netflix. Amen. Just, the, just the, the anxiety attack of the scroll of what do I do next, right? So over and over again. Um, now, the main one, though, that, that perpetuate the decision paralysis to a level of, like, debilitation is the black hole called Amazon. So uh, me, a classic Andy move is to lose things all the time. Uh, and I recently just lost my uh, precious blue water bottle at Shelby Park. It just disappeared. So, um, uh, so likewise, this is why I don't have nice things, because I always lose them. So I go into the black hole that is Amazon. And I don't know if you guys knew this, but there are uh, 1.76 billion different water bottles 
that you can buy on amazon.com, right? So you're scrolling, I have no idea what to do. I thought this would be easy. Just a quick click in the button, what am I gonna do? Well, Amazon was brilliant and they created, you guys have seen this, the like comparison chart at the bottom, right? So like, okay, great. So I'm not gonna have to look at all 1.76 billion. I can just compare a few of them, right? So you look at them, you say, okay, well, this is like uh, the really great one. This one does, uh, you know, the lid is this way and holds 12 hours of hot liquid as opposed to six. It has a Bluetooth connection to it for a water bottle somehow. So all these amazing things are great. I know what to make. So this is how we make decisions, right? We compare things that are good to discover what is best. We compare things that are good to discover what is best. What is best? That is one of the main themes in the book of Hebrews, is looking for that word. The other word that is used is superior. What is superior? What is best? And throughout the text, if you're noticing, we're comparing a lot of themes in the Old Testament. Angels, Moses. Today, we're going to look at priesthood, covenant, comparing all of these good things and the conclusion at the end of the day that the Hebrews author is making is we got one thing that's best. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's our main idea for today. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Let's pray to that end and then we're going to dive into this text. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the good news that is seen in the book of Hebrews. Jesus, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Would things be clear? Would this, these texts that are full of unbelievably beautiful truths make sense? And would your glory, Jesus, be seen? Not me. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I invite you to please be in the book of Hebrews because we're going to be going around quite a bit. So Hebrews chapter 8 is kind of the anchor text um, where we're going to be. I'm going to have two main points for us today on why Jesus is better. Uh, and th these are the two arguments that in these texts the Hebrews author is making. Point number one is that Jesus has a better priesthood. Point number two is that Jesus ushers in a better and new covenant. So priesthood and covenant, that's where we're going. Um, so when we look at this, this, we get a nice oratory device right away in verse one in chapter eight, which is going to kind of help us like think through this. And he, he makes this statement, which could cause us to pause all the time. Verse one. Now the main point of what is being said is this. So if you're reading something like that, you underline and you say, I should pause for a minute. The author's given us like a homiletical clue to just breathe and take a minute and remember what in the world is going on. Okay, that's what we're going to try to do. So what's happening here is the author is making the argument that Jesus is the better high priest. He's the superior high priest. He's actually been making that argument all the way since chapter four. That's when he started it. Okay, so then he drops this name drop, this like, Awana trivia junkie guy drops Melchizedek a couple of times. And I, you know, I was talking to Nathan Ivey about this. Seems like everyone's like, man, can't wait for Melchizedek. Well, here we go. So uh, Melchizedek, he drops it like in chapter five, he quotes, he quotes Psalms 110 that you're a, a, a priest forever in the priesthood of Melchizedek, right? So he's dropping these things. And then and then he pauses, like, like he makes this trivia drop on this random reference seemingly to a, an Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, and then he pauses for two chapters, five and six, and gives exhortations to the church. And that's where we've been actually camping out, right? 
of warnings to not fall away, of exhortation in times of suffering, of, 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 of wake up and stop being so immature, okay? Well, then he pauses back in, and we unpack the story of Melchizedek. In fact, we can't understand chapter 8 unless we understand chapter 7. So we're going to look back at chapter 7 briefly, um, and we're going to think about this better priesthood that Jesus offers in. So what is a priest? We do need to start there. Um, many of us do know that concept. That makes sense. But just really briefly, a priest is essentially, excuse me, essentially a mediator, a representative between a people and a deity. Okay, it's not just a Judeo-Christian idea. In the ancient, ancient Near East, there are priests all over the place. Uh, to the different pagans and cults all, all over. Like that concept of like, there's a person that mediates people to a deity and teaches them, shows them how to worship that deity, gets them in the presence of that deity, sacrifices for worship to that deity, right? And represents the people. And well, in the Old Testament, the priesthood that came out of the line of Levi is the priesthood that orchestrates the covenant, which we'll get to a little bit later, between God and man, between God and Israel. He's the mediator that helps make this thing happen. This whole desire that God's been longing to be about since Genesis chapter three, when the union, the dwelling between God's image bearers and himself was shattered by sin, there's been this desire from God ever since then to dwell with his people again. And one of the means of grace to get that done in the Old Testament was the office of the priesthood. Let's get these people back into my presence. And God used both covenant and priesthood to get that done. So the priest, specifically, there was one type of priest, the high priest, that had the task to be as close to God as humanly possible on earth. And that was within the tabernacle. He could go into the Holy of Holies and he could offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement to absolve the sin of the entire nation of Israel for that year. There was one person who was able to do that. That was the high priest. One person. Hebrew author is saying, that dude was dope. Jesus is superior though. So this is how he dives in. And he makes this connection to Melchizedek. Okay, so rewind to chapter 7, and this, I'm going to read these first chunks here for chapter 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem meaning king of peace, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. So the author recounts this story from Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham meets the king of Salem, Melchizedek, a priest of God most high. And Abraham, after having victory over some neighboring kings, had a, the spoils of war, and he gives a tenth of those possessions to this random guy. Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is saying this dude was extremely important. Like in Genesis, we're like, we don't know what this is. But as you back up and see the whole of scripture, you see the Holy Spirit of God planting a seed right at the very beginning and having this beautiful through line all the way. Like camping out and mentioning him again in Psalms, 110, and then mentioning it again in Hebrews. Guys, that's it. 
And it's one of the most important, theologians call it types, like a metaphor, an analogy, a foreshadowing of who Jesus is. God drops it in Genesis chapter 14. And so here's why it's so significant, why the author of Hebrews is like really excited about Melchizedek, even though we're like, we don't know why we're so excited about him, dude. So he compares Melchizedek to Abraham, showing how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, okay? The first reason he's greater is that he blessed, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and he received a tithe from Abraham, okay? That's like a power dynamic right there. That's like demonstrating who's important. So uh, if, if you're blessing somebody, that would be a superior, a better person blesses a lesser person. A father blesses a son. A master blesses a slave. A king blesses citizens. So here's this just immediate reality of like, okay, Abraham just whipped up on all of these kings and he receives a blessing from this king. Showing that there's a hierarchy here. Okay, so that's number one. And then number two, the tithe that's being given. Okay, he gives the spoils of war. A lesser person gives a tithe to a greater person. We give our tithes to the king of the universe. We give our, our, our monies to the king of the universe because it's a recognition that you are worthy of everything. And that is what is happening in this moment, is Abraham, God's chosen man, is giving a tithe to Melchizedek. Okay, giving a tithe to Melchizedek. So all of this is being laid out, and this is why this is crazy significant as well, is that Melchizedek does not have a genealogy. So that's what the author of Hebrews pointed out. Like there was some silence in the Old Testament text, and the author of Hebrews is saying, did you notice that? He doesn't have, verse 3, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a high priest forever. So uh, quick Quick thing, he's not, um, Melchizedek, there's a lot of like thoughts what's going on. Is this like the pre-incarnate Christ? Is this like a crazy angel? Like what in the world's going on? And I think that that text in Hebrews helps us understand what's going on because of the word resembling the son of God, okay? He's not the son of God. He's not some, he was a real dude. He lived, he, he, he didn't have, the author of Genesis didn't put his genealogy in there because the Holy Spirit of God knew that I'm gonna use this as an incredible symbol for Christ, the true king right? So authors of Hebrews is using that to, 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 to identify something really beautiful about who Jesus is, okay? Identify this incredible, crazy reality that God, before the Levitical priesthood was set up, okay? Levi was Abraham's great-grandson. There is a priesthood that is set up before Levi even comes on the scene. Before the, 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 the sacrificial system is set up, before being able to have a priest that represents them to God, there was a priest already there. Almost God saying, uh, there's something better that is still going to be coming. He's like, he's like spoiling it all the way at the beginning, right? So that's a powerful, powerful picture that, that God is setting up a different priesthood before the Levitical priesthood was even established. The Levitical priesthood was a hereditary one, meaning priests only came from the tribe of Levi. After one priest died, he would then be seceded by another priest of the same tribe of Levi. Well, there's no genealogy of Melchizedek. So who's going to secede him then? Right? That's what the author's getting at. And then he ties in Psalm 110, 
It's saying you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's only one person in the history of the cosmos who lives forever, and that's our King Jesus resurrected from the dead sitting on the throne of God right now. That priesthood's not going anywhere. Jesus has it. It's fully his. So, so the author of Hebrews is saying and declaring that he is from this order, okay? And that makes him the best high priest we could ever imagine. He lays out three different realities for why Jesus is the better high priest. He's better because of his permanency. He's better because of his perfection. And he's better because of his proximity. Let's walk through those three. First, permanency. Jesus' priesthood is better because of his permanency. So look in verse 23 of chapter 7. 23 says, Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds a priesthood permanently, just like we were laying out. Therefore, here it is. Therefore, he is able to save completely those have come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. The Levitical priest, they would die off, and no one would really know what the successor would be like. Is he going to be a good dude or is he going to be a punk? Is he going to be faithful or is he going to be corrupt? Think about in uh, uh, the, uh, uh, 1 Samuel 1 through 3 is the story of Eli and his super corrupt sons. So the whole nation of Israel is looking at like, here are these punk kids that are going to take this over. What in the world are we going to do? They're supposed to be representing God for us. And they're doing weirdo wacko stuff in the temple, stealing money and all these crazy things. Like... The, the, the perpetual cycle of the priesthood did not bring comfort to people. It's like when we think of, wait for it, the franchise of Jaws. Okay, I'll get there. So, Jaws, by the way, factoid to impress your friends, it's where we got the term blockbuster from, because when that puppy was released, the line went around the block to get to see that thing in the theater. So, there you go. Um, <laughs> Jaws was written by the one and only Steven Spielberg. And it is one of the like, top 100 best movies of all time, right? Dun, 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 dun. We all know what that means. So we're all terrified to go in the ocean now too. Thanks, Steven. So we, all the rest, there are, I don't know, I don't know if you guys knew this. This is uh, helpful for me. Uh, there are actually four Jaws movies. Did you guys know that? Anyone know that? There are four. Uh, guess who cares about the other three? Nobody. Because guess who didn't write the other three? Steven Spielberg. He wrote the first one. That's why he was so good. He didn't write any of the rest of them. That's why they're garbage. So we, we didn't have a perpetuation of Steven Spielberg going into the Jaws, right? There was an inconsistency in excellence, in quality, in creativity. It was just all crazy. If there was a perpetual Steven Spielberg, the Jaws Foundation would probably be unbelievable, right? So, but, but for the priesthood that's happening here, there was an inconsistency that was occurring over and over and over again. But not with our King Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is alive. He remains priest forever. He doesn't have a term limit. He's not being booted out. He's not having to be reassigned. He's king of kings and lord of lords. I want you to know that that is incredibly good news for you and me right here, right now. Because while we have so much inconsistency in leaders around us, don't we? 
So much uncertainty about what is going to happen. So much, I don't know what this new regime is going to do. I don't know what this new CEO is going to be like. I don't know what this new professor or teacher or institution of this school is going to do. But I do know this. There's a King Jesus who is always good, who is always faithful, who's not going anywhere, who is perpetually pursuing you, who is affected to save you, who is interceding for you, who is never going to give up on you. He's permanently your priest, not going anywhere. His permanency makes him better. He's also perfect, which makes him so much better. The Levitical priests were flawed. Verse 26 in chapter 7, for this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do. First for their own sins, then for those of the people. What happened in the sacrificial system is the priests, their role was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. They also had to offer sacrifices on behalf of themselves because they were busted up. They were corrupt. They were wicked. They were affected by the same sin curse that the people of Israel were. They had to constantly do it over and over and over again. It wasn't even super effective because they kept on having to sacrifice all these animals because people kept sinning over and over and over again. I think that that is one of our biggest issues when we think of leadership, people that we're looking to, to follow. is that they're flawed. Men and women we look up to, especially those showing us how to relate to God, fail. I still remember seven years ago when my mentor had a moral failure. Mentor that I followed all through my early 20s. Moral failure, eliminated from ministry. It pulled the rug out from underneath me. Equilibrium was gone. Because of this, if he's capable of that, what am I capable of, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. Well, wait a minute. I, he just completely failed. So many of us have wounds because we've been following people to show us how to live the good life, how to be faithful, and then they fail. And some of us, even in this room, without even thinking about it, will project that on God himself of maybe he's not trustworthy as well. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He is perfect. Let that sit. He is the definition of beauty. He is the definition of justice, of goodness, of righteousness, of faithfulness, of self-control. He embodies all of it. He's perfect. He'll never, ever let us down. When we see someone fail in front of us, don't let that be a projection of Jesus. Let that be antithesis of Jesus. Let it be that I know that he's not like that. I know that he is the faithful one that I'm here to follow. I know that that person, even if they did a phenomenal job, is only a shadow of who Jesus truly is. A busted, dirty mirror of who Jesus is. It's a miracle even got a glimpse of who Jesus is from that person because he's the one that we're ultimately looking to. Is he your perfect high priest that you're emulating? 
Or are you trying to emulate someone else? Remember, they're just a shadow. They're just a broken, busted up mirror pointing you to the true thing. So he's perfect. And Jesus' priesthood is better because of his proximity. His proximity. So this now gets us into chapter 8. We have this kind of high priest who sat down, verse 1, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. He is the one who ministers not in an earthly temple, but a heavenly temple. Not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. For every high priest, verse 3, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. Here it is, verse 5. These, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, these serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. The tabernacle, the temple, which by the way, Mark chapter 13 and Luke and all the gospels, you'll see this account of the disciples with Jesus going into into Jerusalem and they see the temple from afar. Uh, Mark chapter 13, they said, Jesus, look at how incredible that thing is. Look at those stones. Look at the ornateness. Look at the majesty of what that is. I mean, also saying this, that's where you can go to be close to the Lord. That's, where, that, 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 that's on earth right there. Like that's where heaven and earth will meet in that holy of holies. Look at that thing. Isn't that incredible? And Jesus says, it's a photograph. It's a cute Polaroid picture. Hey, listen, the Grand Canyon is beautiful, isn't it? Some of y'all love that thing got a beautiful picture, incredible photographers, and you put it up on display in your house because it's super incredible. It's beautiful. Look at the colors. Look at this. I tell you what, you'll throw that thing away when you stand on the canyon of the Grand Canyon and see how magnificent it truly is. We all say this, don't we? The photo doesn't do it justice. Man, the temple in all of its glory The cosmos in all of its glory. The greatest thing you can imagine on this earth in all of its glory is a Polaroid photo compared to the glory of the real thing. And Jesus ministers in the real thing. That was all a copy. Moses got specific instructions. He elaborated it in uh, in Exodus 26 of like, you do this verbatim because it's going to point. It's going to be a signpost. It's going to point. It's going to point. It's going to point. And Jesus, his proximity is he's in that heavenly temple and he is mediating on behalf of you and me. There is no massive distance. There is no like one little section where Jesus can have a conversation with the king of, with the glorious king of the universe. He's right there. He's as close as you can get to the father saying, Andy needs help right now. And he's doubting right now. And he's hurting right now. Forgive Andy right now. He failed again. Or even when I was saved, redeem Andy. My blood bought that kid. He's messed up, but I have, I, I've been slain on his behalf. He's clean now. That proximity is right there. The best mediator, it's all about proximity. And Jesus is as close as you can possibly get. He's the best high priest. 
He's better. I love the summary in verse six. Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been established on better promises. Direct access to the Father. While the Israelite priests were inconsistent, imperfect, and ineffective, our high priest is permanently, perfectly, and powerfully effective to intercede on behalf of you and me. And there's nothing on this earth that compares to him. What are you looking for in this life right now to gain proximity to God? Maybe satisfaction in your life? Security in your life? Absolution from your guilt in this life? What leader are you looking to in this life that perhaps you are not properly recognizing that that leader may be good, but Jesus is better. That's point number one. Jesus is the better high priest, and then Jesus ushers in a better covenant. So this now gets to this quote. As he says that he ushers in a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant, verse 7, has been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, and then by the way, this is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. It's from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. This is what the beginning says. See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. So let's talk about the problems with the old covenant real quick. What is a covenant, first and foremost? So covenant is a term that we don't use very often nowadays, uh, but it was a solemn commitment between two parties, guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. By the way, a covenant uh, in, in, in the original language has the idea of, of binding or, or fettering, like sh- fettering shackles on your ankle, right? And a covenant was always the literal cut, you would cut a covenant, meaning blood. There was always blood with covenants. So in Abraham, there was always blood, circumcision. In the Mosaic covenant, there was always blood, sacrifices, the Passover lamb, there was always blood. So this wasn't like I'm signing with my pen, uh, the agreement here between what we're talking about. It's there's blood being shed. In fact, what often would happen in the ancient Near East, and you see it in the text, like Jeremiah has this happen. Jeremiah 34, God talks about this. Uh, Genesis 17, there's a really bizarre story of Abraham dividing up all of these sacrifices into an aisle. And then, and then this, these symbols of a, of a torch walking down the aisle by itself, this representation of God walking through this covenant. Here was essentially what the sacrifices, the shedding of the blood meant is that I, we've laid out all these stipulations of what we're going to do in this agreement together. Here are the, the things that I'm going to do to fulfill my end of the deal. If I fail on my obligations to this agreement, may I become like these animals. 
That was cutting a covenant. That's not a cute little contract. That's like death is on the line. Death is on the line here. So God made these covenants with his people. And the specific one that the Hebrews author is talking about is the, 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 the old covenant, the main one, which was God's covenant between himself and Israel. The whole purpose of the covenant was to maintain the Lord's unique relationship between himself and his chosen people. That was the purpose of it. That's the promise of it. God's role in the arrangement, relationship and blessing. I will be be your God. You will be my people. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. I'm going to make you a great nation. Those are all of the things that he's promising to Israel. You're going to be my unique possession. A priesthood, actually, is what he would call them. Israel's role? Obey. Ten Commandments. The law. Obey me. And all these things are yours. Primarily me, I'll be your God. And Israel, if we know the text, is not an example of really great uh, morality to follow. Israel is the picture of the human condition and that we will always fail to follow. And that's what we see all throughout the Old Testament. It's just failure after failure after failure of Israel being unable to fulfill their end of the deal. And then sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice being given to absolve them from sin. Verses seven and eight articulated that of saying the first covenant has been faultless. There would have been no occasion for a second one, but finding fault with his people. So here's, you know, uh, the, the the New Testament authors lay out that the old covenant was really good. It was. Paul attests that. Romans chapter 3, Galatians 3, he lays out. It's a, it was a good thing. It was a beautiful thing. It was a just thing. It was a right thing. But the problem wasn't the law. It wasn't the covenant. The problem was the people. They could not obey the covenant. Something new had to come. Something different had to come. Something better had to come. And this, my friends, is articulated unbelievably beautifully in verses 10 through 12. If you want to know what it's like to be a Christian, listen to these words. These are the promises of the new covenant. The first one, knowledge. Verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Okay, under the old covenant, You had to write the laws all over the place to remember them. That's like what Deuteronomy 6 is, right? Write them on the heads and foreheads and your hands and tell them to your kids and and remember these things, remember these things, remember these things. All that memorization didn't do a doggone thing to do an internal change in the people of Israel. All that external practicing, all of that religiosity, all of that incredible obedience never actually changed the inward working of the people. But God said that there is going to be a better day that's coming. A better day is coming. A day when the Lord would etch his commands, chisel his commands on the minds and hearts of his people. This is a, not an outward change, but an inward transformation. Not talking about duty anymore, sojourn. We're talking about delight. We're not talking about power by your own strength. 
We're talking about power from his strength to enable you to do things that do not add up. Miraculous things. But this is not of you. This is a day when the Lord was going to etch this in the minds and hearts where there was going to be an internal like, compass and knowledge and desire to be faithful to God. A day is coming, a power when we will be able to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So there's knowledge, there's this relationship. I will be their God and they will be my people. Under the old covenant sojourn, you had to set up a tabernacle and a sacrificial system to be with God. And once a year, only one person could get as close to God as you possibly can in that holy of holies. That was the high priest. God was distant. Oh, he loved them. He loved his people, but he was afar because of their sinfulness. He was unable to be in that desired intimate access. He was like a judge. But then there's a better day that is coming. Jeremiah is professing a day when God would come down and dwell with his people and they would be his. A day when he would walk with his people just like he did beautifully in the garden. That they were going to be his people. And then look in verse 11. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen, each of his brother or sister, saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. And then here it is, verse 12, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. The old covenant, constant repetitive cycle of needing absolution from sin. Shedding of blood was a continuous reminder of sinfulness Never fully pure, never fully clean, never fully restored. But a better day was indeed coming, wasn't it? That's what Jeremiah is saying. A better day is coming. A day when forgiveness from sin would be so great, would be so vast, would be so immense, would be so mind-blowing. Your sin would be separated from you as far as the east is from the west. It would be forgettable. The Lord himself who keeps, who knows all, remembers sin no more. A day was coming and sojourn, that day has come. That day has come. Jesus, our high priest, our better priest, who didn't need to offer sacrifice for sin because he was the sacrifice for sin. He offered himself for you and for me who intercedes on your behalf in the throne room of God who says, that one is mine. That jacked up one, that sinful one, that one who keeps on falling on his face. I love him that much that I would go up on a cross, stay there, bleed out for all of his sins so that he could be made clean and washed anew. He's mine. He's with me. He's made clean. He intercedes for you and me. He's our better high priest who brought full reconciliation in that act. Bringing a holy God and a sinful people together as a family. You're adopted. You're a child. You can go into, Tim Keller puts it this way, you can go into the throne room of God like a little kid can wake up his parents just because they want a glass of water. That's the intimacy that Jesus has achieved for you through his reconciliation. And he rose from the dead on the third day, didn't he? 
He didn't stay dead. He didn't need to have his priesthood replaced. He was victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And he rose on that third day, ascended into heaven, seats at the right hand of the Father, and he sent you and me, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within us. By the way, what a beautiful reality. What a, what a picture of what the Holy Spirit does. Etches the Lord's commands on your hearts. Puts it in your mind. So that crazy, unbelievable things can happen out of sinful people like you and me. Regeneration occurs where all of a sudden, instead of being known as liars and as adulterers and people who just constantly are spewing out vitriol against people, we become transformed and we begin to produce crazy things like love, like joy, like peace, like patience, like gentleness, like goodness, like faithfulness, like self-control. We are walking miracles of things that should not be happening. Because of the Holy Spirit of God that the King Jesus has sent within you, you are that beautiful signpost of who King Jesus is and what the good life actually looks like. Jesus is better. So how do we apply these truths this, this week? That's how I'm going to conclude for us. My encouragement for all of us, simply contemplate how Jesus is better. Contemplate how Jesus is better. I think it'll do two things. First, I think it'll expose idols and lead to confession. As you think about the things in your life that you are looking for, for security, fulfillment, satisfaction, absolution, you compare all of that with Jesus, you're going to identify some idols in your life. For some of us, for me, school for my kids. I really want that security of their future. Jesus is better. He's the future that they need. A fulfilling job. Oh, I want that vocation for some of us in this room that, that brings that just deep fulfillment. Well, Jesus is better. His fulfillment brings what you're ultimately longing for. Financial security. I just want to be able to sleep at night. I want you to know that there's a God in heaven who counts all of your tossing turning throughout the night. That's going to give you so much more peace than some money in your pocket will. And that gives you freedom to unleash those finances, to be about something perpetually better, which is his kingdom work that will not rot or go away. That's investing in something that will last forever. For some of us, it actually may be our obedience, our prayer life, our spiritual disciplines have shifted from being a means of grace to experience the better thing to your through line to be the better thing. That, hear this, this is beautiful. Jesus is infinitely better than your obedience. Resting in that does this crazy flip where we actually grow in obedience when we're leaning into his. That's leaning into his strength, not your own. And then it'll also, when we contemplate Jesus, reveal God's beauty. I believe it's gonna lead to worship. As you think about how good Korean barbecue is, you're going to think about how infinitely better 
the feast of heaven will truly be. When you think about how good fly fishing is, tell you what, it's a good time. Basking in the goodness and grace of the creation that's all around you, that is just a picture of the beautiful kingdom that you're longing for. Leads you to worship. Jesus is that much better. As your marriage is so good and a gift of grace, there's a better thing, that intimacy that you're truly longing for. And for some of you, you have been settling for something that is good, but it's not better. For some of you, you've been placing your salvation in things that are good, but it's not the best thing. So maybe this week, as you contemplate Jesus, perhaps you need to give your life to him. That you need to actually believe in him. That you became to realize that I've not truly given my life to the king of the universe, the true high priest that I long for. I love this. This is, how, this is, this is the end here. Verse 13. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete is growing old and is about to pass away. Um, I had the corded uh, headphones from Apple forever. How embarrassing, right? <laughs> Trying to work out, they're getting, they're getting knocked off, you look like a joke, right? So I got that. Um, but listen, you get to listen to music, right? So like, oh, I get to listen to the new tracks and it's really unbelievable and you watch movies on them and it's fantastic. I got, I got gifted a pair of Beats headphones. They have changed my life. I can understand how beautiful music is. And guess what's collecting dust? I don't even know where they are right now. My corded headphones. In fact, I could let my little kids use them as like, I don't know, a string to tie their shoes with or something. Because when you discover the better thing, the old thing's obsolete. Jesus is that better thing. Everything else fades away compared to his glory. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.